Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, I lead investor relations at Vent, and I'm joined as always by Billy Galanko, who is our head of wine. We have a great episode today as our 2022 quarter one quarterly collection update report came out this past week. It's our first report of our entire portfolio, and we're excited to share updates on each collection, which Billy will go over here in a moment. And then later on in the episode, we have a really great interview with David Keck, Master Sommelier, working on a really fun project in Vermont, growing wine. And David's just an awesome guy, man of many talents, and we had a great conversation with him. So stay tuned for that. But Right now, Billy, could you just give us the high-level updates on our collection report for the first quarter and just where our collections stand? For sure. Yeah. So this collection report has been a long time coming. We've heard from many of our community members. They'd like to hear some updates on their collections. And we've definitely been trying to explore the best way to present all of that to everyone as these collections have started really to accumulate here. So what we did for this report was basically just grouped all of our collections into one massive report. We gave you a general highlight of the overview of the whole wine kind of secondary market, and then a little blurb on each of the collections in particular. And then each collection, as long as there was one available, kind of overviews an index that's related to the collection, whether it be, you know, sub-region specific, like right bank or left bank Bordeaux or or Bordeaux classics. Um, And it can be as broad as, you know, an Italy specific index. So, it was a really interesting quarter. I think everybody who's been kind of paying attention to the world noticed Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Many people in Europe in particular have been kind of trying to wait and see how that's going to impact the economy there. And of course, it's you know rippled out into the United States as well. But when it comes to the secondary wine market, there is certainly going to be an impact. So Q1 overall, again, the secondary wine market is, is growing as a whole. The fine wine category um, measured by the LiveX 1000, which is kind of the benchmark for the macro scale of wine in the secondary trading market, how is it doing? It was up 7.3% in Q1 of this year. What we really saw was continued momentum from 2021 in January, a little bit of leveling off at the end of February, early March, as Russians moved into Ukraine. Everybody was trying to see what that was going to do, kind of what, what that meant to the macro economy around the world. And it seems that now that the invasion's kind of gone on for an extended period of time. There's been a little bit more understanding of where the impacts are going to be, where the costs are going to come in. And the wine market has has continued its momentum that it was seeing previously. So it's kind of picked back up off this little lull. Certain regions were impacted a little bit more than others with this lull, I guess you would say, in, in purchasing and then volume in general. We saw Bordeaux slow down a little bit more in terms of volume of sales and value compared to I would say something like California, which really saw only a a little bit of a hiccup. But the top performing categories, um, I guess, regions from the first quarter were Burgundy, again, continuing its momentum. The Burgundy index, primary one from LiveX, which is the Burgundy 150, was up 14.6% for the quarter. Champagne, again, continuing its momentum up 9.6%, according to the LiveX index. And California was also up 8.3%, according to their, their California 50 index. What's really interesting to see here is this is, again, kind of continuing momentum from 
the last year, 2021, what kind of stood out and was were shining stars are continuing to perform well. Another really interesting performer was the the Rhone Valley. It came in fourth out of all subregions in the world, just behind California. It was at 5.1%, I believe, the, the Rhone 100. And this is accelerating growth from last year. Last year, it was up, I can't remember exactly the amount off the top of my head, but it was between 10 and 20%. And right now we're on pace for about 20% growth in the index. So it's really exciting. And for those of you who are able to invest in the Roan collection, that, that bodes well. But yeah, no, it's been a really interesting quarter and we're really excited to have this report for everyone to kind of dive into their collections. Yeah, and just a little bit of context around some of these reports in the broader alternative assets industry, alternative assets and collectibles, there's just not historically a lot of data to be able to look at for some of these asset classes, but wine and spirits and wine especially stand out for us because there is a lot more robust sources for data, You know, thinking about LiveX and the indices that they produce. And we do have a couple decades of wealth of information that we can pull from. So we're excited to find new ways to utilize that information. We think that it's actually one of the benefits of investing in wine and spirits is that you kind of have a little bit more context around each investment that you make. As always with alternatives, comparables can be difficult, right? So if a new collectible asset comes onto the market, it can be difficult to understand price comps for that asset. But wine also has an advantage there because you know vintages are made consecutively year after year, and there's always some reference point for what a particular wine is may or may not be worth. And we want to find new ways to be able to repackage that information so that it's more accessible for our investors. And so be on the lookout for more of these reports each quarter, as well as just new information overall on our platform and via email on uh, collection data and, and just ways that you can better understand the market. That's a great point. Just a little bit more background on LiveX as a source of data is, to Brady's point, a lot of these different wines have had a long track record of performance and it's been measured by different companies over the years. LiveX was founded about 20 years ago now, I think maybe a little bit more. And they have over 500 merchants on their platform right now. So it's it's accessible only to business to business people or, or entities. And there's $100 million of wine available at any given time on the platform. So the volume of wine that's traded daily, monthly, yearly is is what really allows them to get a sense of what the macro trends in the wine markets are doing. So being able to extrapolate from this data, they're able to create indices and really give a macro view. So right now they're the gold standard for wine measurement. You'll see in this report also, we reference the performance of some of our whiskey collections. McAllen and Karazawa are both still doing very well. The data we're using here are indices provided by a, a website called Rare Whiskey 101. The whiskey market has even less data available for the most part than the wine market. So what Rare Whiskey does is it works by tracing sales across across the internet and through different sources, whether it be auction data, retail data, and really just monitoring what prices are going for for certain bottles of wine and certain distilleries across the, the world. So Rare Whiskey 101 is trusted by publications like the Knight Frank Wealth Report and, and other publications. So that's why we chose that as our source for data for whiskey as well. We always want to be as transparent as possible with our investors and with the wider, broader alternative asset community. And so if you have any questions about the report, about our past collections, or even our current collections, Billy is always available to field questions about wine. And I'm happy to discuss our platform a little bit more broadly 
and just walk you through any questions that you may have in this report. Just feel free to reach out to us. Yeah. And then to Brady's point, whether it be questions about the wine in particular, the individual bottles, the whiskeys in particular, or kind of where each of these kind of collections stand on a macro platform, our, our platform really does allow you to diversify. If you can't notice by our really nuanced or diversified types of collections here, which is you know really on, on display in this report, we're able to help everybody kind of understand what they're investing in and really invest in the wines that they are most interested in and feel like they're best for them. So we're always here to answer your questions like Brady said. Yeah, and with that, Billy, um, let's dive into our interview with David Keck. David, like I said in the intro, is a really interesting guy. He graduated Juilliard, has sung opera professionally and became a master sommelier and now has the title of winemaker beside his name. So we're excited for this conversation as he discusses his new project in Vermont, growing some new hybrid varietals and likely some varietals that you've never heard of and using some techniques that most people probably aren't super familiar with. So also he has recently led teaching courses in American whiskey. And so he's being a master sommelier is super knowledgeable across all kinds of beverage classes. And so we touch a little bit on whiskey and American whiskey, which we hope to have a little bit more content around as we move forward. But for now, enjoy this conversation with David. Well, hi, David. Thanks for joining us today. We're here with David Keck, MS, taking time out of his busy schedule to join today. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, likewise. It's been, uh, how long have we we've been chatting for? It's been um, almost nine months now um, when I first reached out. So um, it, it's really exciting. David and I have been kind of speaking back and forth ever since I heard him on the Guildsome podcast and talking more about his his adventures in, in viticulture in Vermont, as well as kind of talking about his background in wine. So first, before we dive into all of that, let's let's touch on, um, you were just in Texas for sommelier work. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing down there? Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually one of my favorite things that we do in the quartermaster sommeliers, which is the advanced course. It originally, when I, back when I sat the advanced exam, you kind of, it was rolled into uh, the course and the exam were rolled together. So you would kind of show up somewhere and have three days of education and then two and a half days of exam. And so it was a pretty brutal week. And a few years ago, actually a number of years ago now, we decided to separate the two. So essentially we do the course, which is three days of seminars and blind tastings for sommeliers who are thinking of sitting the advanced sommelier exam. So it gives them an opportunity to basically understand what the level should be for any given region and have some seminars with master sommeliers and then a bunch of blind tastings to kind of gauge where they are and also um, just be in an educational setting for a few days rather than sitting with the sort of staring down the barrel of the exam at the end. That makes a lot of sense. I was going to say, I don't know when this changed. When I did my intro and the certified, it was 2017. And that's kind of how they did the intro was like, two days yeah. basically of tasting and education and exam right at the end. So I think this yeah, one makes still, sense. Yeah, no, for sure. The intro still kind of goes that way, but it's a little bit, there's sort of less, obviously less pressure on, on that thing. And um, yeah, but <laughs> when I passed my advance, it was like five days in Las Vegas and it was an intense way to sit an exam. <laughs> the one of the perks there is at least you find out kind of right away. I'm, I'm doing, going down the, the, diploma route for WSET. And after you take these exams and waiting months for your results, it's torturous. Yeah, totally different game. Yeah. 
What did you teach down there? Which courses did you focus on? So I was teaching actually American whiskey with Keith Goldston, a uh, master sommelier based in Houston and longtime friend and mentor of mine. And so as a sommelier, the coursework that we do and the exams cover basically any beverage that can be served in a restaurant. And so we always have one spirits or sort of other beverage uh, lecture in the midst of a bunch of wine lectures. And so Keith and I were teaching the sort of history and future or I guess past, present, and future of American whiskey. So it's fun. Oh, that's that's really interesting. We've had a few whiskey collections on the Vint platform so far, but they've been mostly standard single malts from Scotland and then also a yep. Japanese whiskey. Where where do you see the American whiskeys kind of going outside of, I, I mean, I the only reason I know this is from my certified sommelier time was, you know, the only thing that makes bourbon bourbon is 49% or is it 51% corn? And then, you know, the rest of the mash bill can be anything. Let me know if that's true. Number one, and number two, do you see, <laughs> do you see more, you know, single malt styles trying to be made here? Where, where do you see it going in the United States? Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, looking at what is happening now is definitely somewhat a, a look to the past and in the way that a lot of places are are going with their wine as well. American whiskey, I think we certainly have the bourbon craze and that hasn't let up. And the sort of cult nature of Kentucky bourbon particularly is pretty, pretty intense. And yeah, I mean, the mash bill is a lot of an aging requirements in new oak barrels, new charred oak barrels. Like, mm-hmm. you know, those are kind of the, the specifics of or sort of the requirements for bourbon. But I think what we're seeing elsewhere, we showed whiskey from Maryland, where they're starting to do an old school Maryland rye, which predates bourbon anyway. You know, Maryland and Pennsylvania rye predate the sort of Kentucky bourbon days and the frontier whiskey making. And then, you know, seeing what we're doing, we, we tasted, you know, Whistle Pig 15, which is actually a Canadian whiskey aged in Vermont barrels. So totally unique there, but they're also doing a bunch of rye here in Vermont with Vermont rye and aged in Vermont oak. And so I think there's definitely a push right now in the American whiskey world to find a sense of terroir in a way that it hasn't really 100% existed outside of sort of the Kentucky urban world. So it's it's really fascinating. And I think we're seeing that in Canada as well with some Canadian whiskeys that are moving away from sort of large batch blended whiskeys to sort of small batch, more localized production. And um, it's fun and some really, really beautiful stuff. So Cool. I'll let Brady hop in here in a sec. He's from Maryland. So that's interesting to hear. Probably has a question on which ones, but just to clarify for our listeners. So yeah, so the, to be bourbon, it has to be 51% corn and then it has to spend at least uh, like a little bit of time. I mean, I, I've heard of some as, as low as like an hour or so in um, 100% charred new oak, new American oak barrels. Or is that the two main requirements to be considered? Those bourbon? are the big, yeah, that's it. And then as soon as you start throwing different things like straight bourbon or Kentucky straight bourbon or bottled and bond. And I mean, the, the nomenclature gets more and more complicated from there on in. Yeah. And I love that we were talking about the, um, you know, a lot of the historic aspects of whiskey production are not a hundred percent known, right? Because it, a lot of this wasn't written down. So, you know, there's a lot of myths around it, but one of the arguments that Fred know of sort of the, the son of Booker know the hierarchy of whiskey production was talking about why it's new American oak that has to be used for bourbon production. And he was like, well, probably had a lot to do with the Cooper's lobby in Washington. So a bunch of Coopers went in and said, no, it has to be new barrels. And so all of a sudden (laughs) they've got to 
a steady stream and uh, of of new barrels going to Kentucky, good source of revenue. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, I I grew up in Maryland, and then a little bit spent a year after college, um, which I went to in Baltimore, um, in Pikesville, and says so the I guess one of the names in rye is maybe Heaven Heaven Hill Distillery and the Pikesville rye. Yeah. Um, Rye, sure. Yeah, I guess it's definitely, you know, maybe leading the Maryland stage, at least like in the consumer markets from what I can see. But, you know, I'm, I've kind of been interested in heritage varieties, grain varieties. I know down in South Carolina, High Wire Distillery in collaboration with Anson Mills, I think, did a Jimmy Red Corn Whiskey, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. It's 100% Jimmy Red Corn Whiskey with just absolutely incredible depth of flavor for, you know, hundred percent corn. It's, you know, people are doing some really incredible things with these heritage varieties and stuff that they're bringing back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, the one we were actually working with out of Maryland is Sagamore Spirit. I don't know if you've tried their stuff, but um, that's um, Kevin Planks, I guess. um, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they are just now, I think we, we actually brought in bottling they call pennies proof which was has just been released for their club thus far and is only available at the distillery and they sell it for a penny a bottle because it's not yet ready age-wise, but it's made exclusively with Maryland rye. So it's okay. now, I think, four and a half years old and they're getting close to releasing it, but it was absolutely delicious, really nice. I mean, just like in wine, there are so many, uh, not side projects, but projects going on under the radars that go so much deeper than just Napa or just Kentucky bourbon, right? Right. Oh, hundred percent. It's part of what makes things interesting. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of why we're, we're chatting today. So let's dive in here to how you got into wine and a little bit of your, your Psalm journey. And then we'll get into one of those under the radar projects and movements, I guess, Vermont wine. So how did you get into the wine in the first place? So a little bit of a circuitous route. I am um, like many, uh, many people looking to have a side source of income. I started bartending when I was 18 and then bartended my way through college and always kind of worked in restaurants, worked in some decent places, ran a couple of small bar programs. But bear in mind, this is a while ago, long before I think the bar, the cocktail revolution really firmly hit. So, you know, using fresh juice in anything was still a a revelation for most people back when I was getting into bartending. And then I was a musician for many years as sort of my first career. And I like to credit a, a friend and mentor and uh, and wine uh, connoisseur in New York, who is also a coach. And he's a coach and conductor and pianist, Ken Merrill, who I worked with at Juilliard when I was there. And Ken and his partner, Chris, are, are you know, they're collectors, but also have been in wine and love wine and are friends with a bunch of winemakers. And Ken kind of found out that I was interested in wine, if only sort of peripherally. And he said, well, you should, you know, come over for dinner. We'll try a bunch of stuff. And that was kind of one of my first revelatory uh, dinners where, you know, I brought my own little bottle of, I think, French Syrah, but it was, you know, kind of inexpensive and just trying to figure out what I was doing. And, uh, you know, Ken and Chris were like, great, well, if we're going to try this, we should pull out this and then let's try this together. And by the time we were done with dinner, it was 10 bottles on the table and just, you know, tasting everything. And that was kind of the beginning. So from there, ended up bartending at a a wine bar when I was doing my master's in music as well. And then uh, decided to take a career change in 2010 
away from, I was professionally singing opera and I decided, you know what? It was right after the economy kind of took a dive and most of the opera houses were kind of doing the same operas over and over again in the States. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to try something new. Right about that time, I sat my intro course with the Court of Master Sommeliers and the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Man of man of many talents. So I guess working through all of that, how did you end up back in Vermont? I guess Vermont's obviously where you grew up. What, what brought you into the actual viticulture and, and winemaking kind of scene? And then, then we can t- dive into uh, what you're doing yeah. up there. Yeah, so I taught a course actually for the quartermaster sommeliers here in 2020. At that time, I was a partner in a hospitality group down in Houston, and we'd opened a honky tonk, a cheese and wine shop, a restaurant, and we were about to open a fine dining restaurant. And um, came back and kind of realized how exciting the wine culture was in Vermont, how it was growing, and definitely didn't have you know I, the intro course that I taught up here was the first course that had ever been offered in Vermont, and so it kind of sparked uh, an interest in coming back and um, spending time. Also, my family's still here, having grown up here in Vermont. So kind of weighed a lot of options. And with my partner, Lauren, who's also from the Northeast, and we decided in February to cut everything loose in Houston and move back to the Northeast. We were debating moving around June, July, and uh, then beginning of March, sort of got the impression we should leave because it was 2020 and it was the beginning of the pandemic and nobody had any idea what was happening. And so we had kind of a crazy cross-country journey with uh, a moving truck full of our stuff, watching everything close uh, nationally and internationally, and um, sort of lost uh, the ability to stay in the house where we'd intended to stay, and professionally sort of things uh, changed as well. So ended up in Vermont, um, Lauren still working remote, and and I basically was trying to figure out what the next step was. So we were, yeah, we lived in Hotel Vermont, a good friend Matt Canning is their F&B director and he was like well the hotel's empty why don't you hang out here until you find a place to live finally found a place to rent which was not easy in you know the end of March in 2020 and helping a friend and mentor Deirdre Heakin prune her vineyards and found out that a vineyard was available for lease up in Cambridge Vermont which um, was 20 minutes from our house and it is actually the oldest vineyard in Vermont, or one of one of two that can kind of stake that claim. And um, David Boyden had been making wine there since, I guess, the mid '90s, and decided with the pandemic that he and uh, he and his wife were going to sort of take a break from that and lease the vineyards out. And I chatted with Deirdre, and she was like, "You have to do it." And I was like, "I have no idea how to do that." <laughs> <laughs> a lot of academic understanding of how this works, almost no experiential understanding. And she was like, you can't let that vineyard go. You're that close. You got to you gotta do it. So, so we took over an unpruned vineyard full of hybrid varieties in the mountains of Vermont in June of 2020. That's wild, but it sounds exciting because there, there's so many possibilities, but obviously there's a ton of work to do. So like, what was the, that first season kind of like? I mean, obviously the, the vines are... <laughs> in mid form already oh it was crazy yeah i mean so the vineyards have been farmed conventionally and so and and also sort of in the tradition of northeast vineyards which is multi-trunk just because of the cold often you're going to lose a trunk and so it's pretty consistent to train another trunk um and they've been training actually more than that so so we kind of adopted this vineyard that was in a sort of jungle-like form at that point and um 
there were some restaurant workers, some great uh, people who are now dear friends and colleagues that were in Burlington and restaurants were closed. So I was like, hey, uh, we'll, we'll give you lunch if you come hang out and prune. And so we, <laughs> we worked our way through about a third of the vineyard and the rest of it we left um, feral <laughs> for, the, for the season because it just it reached a point that we were pulling, you know, just massive amounts of material out of the vineyard and it was still growing. So it's like, you know what, this is crazy. Let's just um, do our best to keep keep it healthy and harvest this year and get on top of the pruning next year at the right time. And so, yeah, I mean, it was buying a tractor, buying a sprayer, learning how to spray. We converted the vineyard to organics. That was another whole educational process. And then applying for loans to get all the winemaking equipment, to sign a lease, to make the wine. Yeah, it was a it was a totally insane process. And then um, because I'm stubborn, we decided, yeah, we were going to make the wine and not just sell the grapes, which was in retrospect, maybe crazy. But um, but we went went forward with it. And and then we ended up with the earliest frost that the vineyard had seen in probably 30 years. So, so we ended up harvesting earlier than we wanted and faster than we wanted. <laughs> was there was there pretty good records on what varietals were already planted on the site. And so how many varietals and also how many total acres is planted there? Yeah. So it's basically the vineyard property is about 10 acres with about six of it planted and it's planted to, well, they started originally with a lot of the sort of traditional French hybrids, uh, Marshall Foch, Saval Blanc, things like that. And then as they became available, trans sort of switched over to the University of Minnesota cold hardy hybrids that um, that really were showing a lot of promise. So the oldest plantings now are Frontenac Noir is about, I don't know, a third or so of the vineyard, maybe a little bit more than that. Most of the rest of it is planted to Marquette, which was released for propagation at the beginning part of the 21st century, I guess 2006, something like that. And the vineyard was planted in 2009 for the Marquette. And Frontenac Blanc, which is kind of the the white mutation of Frontenac that we only have seven rows, but it's beautiful. It's a really, really stunning variety. Just for curiosity, you mentioned that you left some of the the vines just to go feral and and kind of do their thing for that season. What are the differences in terms of how the vines respond when they're uncapped versus kept and pruned? How long does it take for you to see, you know, notable changes in the kind of fruit that's produced? And what, what are the differences there when you when you see those vineyards? You know, it's pretty immediate. And um, yeah, and we learned the hard way on that. I mean, it not that we had a choice. It wasn't like I had an army. And one of the challenges up here is labor. Obviously, there's just not a lot of folks who are trained in pruning. It's not like we have a whole bunch of you know workers that are available that you know would have been done with if this is california you know you could reach out to the whole community of people to kind of fill your vineyard with with folks to get it pruned and that's not the case here so you see it pretty immediately frontenac noir is a and well actually all of the varieties are really prodigious in their growth and so the Frontenac Noir just grew. I mean, it was just a, a jungle and it, it has huge clusters, actually. They tend to be pretty loose. And when you don't prune them, when we had, you know, multiple chunks and unpruned, the clusters were just smaller and, and super loose. So um, our yield was probably, when we look at the records, we, we 
probably yielded about the same, but it's just a heck of a lot more work. You're just picking a lot more clusters that are less well-developed. And then the big tragedy of the thing is the next year, they all just, you just lose a lot of that growth because everything here is cane pruned or it, uh, most of it is cane pruned because our big issues are fungal disease. And so we're trying to take out, out as much material every year to prevent the spread of more sort of fungal issues. And so if you don't prune, then you just have a massive amount of material in the vineyard that is basically useless. And so you're going back to little shoots. And, um, and so the following year ends up being a real recovery year. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, digging, I guess we'll dive into a little bit about what kind of that pruning means for some of our listeners who may not know. But even, even taking another yeah. step back, can you explain the difference between hybrids um, and crossings? Um, I think for those who don't live on the East Coast, I think many people actually won't be that familiar with hybrids in general. Um, or East, you know, Michigan, East Coast. Um, yeah, just what, what's the difference between a hybrid and a crossing? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest difference um, is that a, a crossing is really, um, you're crossing two varieties of the same species, right? Mm -hmm. So to, to make that a little more clear, like 99% of the, or 90, we'll say 95% of the uh, wine produced in the world is Vitis vinifera. So your Pinot Noirs, your Cabernet Sauvignons, your Riesling, your Chardonnay, all of this is, is all... The, the species is all vitis vinifera. Um, the difference is with, with a hybrid is that we're crossing different varieties in the intention of producing a grape variety that can withstand super cold temperatures. Or, I mean, there, there are hybrids that are produced for any number of different reasons. For us, they're really produced in the interest of creating a variety that can withstand the super cold temperatures. Like this year in January, we had, you know, sub- negative 20 for multiple days. I mean, there were days we didn't get above zero. And so Vitis vinifera is a grape variety, just dies, right? It's like that kind of cold. It just is, you're constantly trying to just keep your vines alive where the hybrids actually do pretty well and survive those temperatures. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then, so hybrids, they're crossed with American Exactly, species. yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't super clear. So they're they're crossed with species that are native to the U.S. and and already sort of can sustain those cold temperatures. Yeah, so like Vitis labrusca, Vitis riparia is, is a crossing that's used in rootstocks. So find what's interesting about those is they'll they'll literally take varietals, Native American varietals that have certain characteristics, and just kind of mesh them, and they keep keep working until they they find a varietal that they that kind of represents the characteristics, the best of both worlds. That's fascinating. And what I also find fascinating, I think we discussed when we first chatted was there are many regions where they'll plant grapes and they'll say, it'll be really interesting to see how this wine ages over time. And it'll be just because like it's a new planting in a certain new area and it's just never been done before. Yep. You're working with grapes that it'll be interesting to see how they age because they didn't even exist, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Exactly. I think that's just no, fascinating. It is, it is wild, and it is, you know, it's super fun to be in an area like this because it is totally pioneering winemaking. And you know, working with Marquette, we have some of the oldest plantings of Marquette. But that grape variety was created in 2006. We planted in 2009. I mean, that's what? How many? How many years? 13 years of growth period. Who knows what that 
variety is going to do when those vines are 20, 25 years old. It's fun to work with colleagues here who are also trying new things, experimenting, playing around because there's no history. There's no tradition here of like, oh, well, Marquette should be grown like this and you should make it like this. It's like, well, what are you doing? How's it working? You like it? Does it taste good? <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, let's try that or let's try something different. And I think the results have been really delicious, a lot of them, but there's no standard by any means. Lots of work then in the winery or how do you think about not where you spend the most time on these wines, but is most of your effort in terms of thinking strategically about the end product focused on the vineyards right now? Or do you think a lot about what happens once you get to the winery? We do very simple winemaking. And I would say that is definitely the trend in Vermont. And I, I always shy away from the term natural winemaking, because I think that is riddled with some hypocrisy and challenges, but I think it's very low intervention overall. I think we're all trying to grow the healthiest grapes possible so that we can do the least amount in the bin, in the winery. Stylistically, to address your question there, Billy, it's, um, it's kind of all over the board, and, and it is very specific to the grape variety, of course, as always, but we're doing a lot of sparkling red because sort of Lambrusco style, dry sparkling red wines, because these grape varieties do have a lot of natural acidity. And I think they lend themselves really nicely to that. There are definitely people making some some pretty big and rich red wines that still have acidity, which is almost paradoxical, but it actually is just the way these varieties work that you can, you know, grow Marquette and still have, you know, a lot of acidity, but 15% alcohol, which is kind of insane. No, most grape varieties, if you let them get that ripe, you lose a lot of the acidity. So it's really fascinating right now, but that stylistically... It's kind of no holds barred. It's, <laughs> it's just uh, everybody playing to see see what works. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I'm a for good Lambrusco. I'm a big fan. And then when I did my vintage in Australia, there's some cool climate areas that were growing Shiraz or Syrah that kind of had the same type of thing. It was a, a beefier wine that they would make in a sparkling style, but it still had acidity because it was close enough to the coast, and it was it was really yeah. interesting. And yeah. and then the sparkling expressions were they're some of my favorite. I would say you were mentioning a little bit about the characteristics of these grapes being chosen for the area. How does farming in Vermont differ? You know, just, just give us like a kind of a year of like, you know, are you burying the vines? How do you protect them from the cold in the winter when it gets down that cold? And then next, how do you think global warming is going to have an impact on your area, knowing that you have such a small, you know, database to kind of measure from? (laughs) Exactly. Well, as far as how we deal with the vines in the vineyard and um, the differences between this growing region and others. So our Canadian neighbors to the north, a lot of what they're growing tend to be vitis vinifera, and they bury the vines, as you as you were alluding, um, which basically protects them in the winter. The cold-hardy hybrids that we're working with for the most part in Vermont don't require that. So I know one vineyard, Shelburne, Ethan down there is growing a little bit of Riesling, and they bury the Riesling. But that, you know, he talks about it and they make a beautiful Riesling, but he said, you know, it's like every other year is a a restart and they're just trying again to get some sort of fruit. So there isn't um, a lot of vinifera growth, so we don't bury them. But we also prune at totally different times than the rest of the year than the, the rest of the sort of winemaking community. Everybody here starts pruning in December and January because we're not really worried about the vines budding out too early and dealing with frost issues. So knock on wood, you know, <laughs> let, let us hope. It's been super warm here the past couple of weeks. So everybody's kind of looking at their vines and saying, don't think about it. Just everybody chill. 
but we don't have bud break until, I mean, Napa's got bud break right now. France has bud break and is dealing with huge frost issues. We don't see bud break. If this year is in any way similar to the past few years, we shouldn't see that for at least a month. And the first year, we didn't see it till the end of May. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we have time. We're right now, we're almost done pruning. And then it's just basically tying everything up and waiting for bud break, which is nice. But we start, yeah, pruning is a less sort of, um, it's a bigger window because we're not worried about that. We're in California and a lot of other places, they're pruning to kind of precipitate bud break and, and put, get the vines pushing. And we're actually just pruning when they're dormant and letting them do their thing. So very different schedule that way. With respect to global warming, I, up here, I really feel the need to call it climate change rather than global warming because, oh, yeah. because it's just, and, and I, it is true that the, the globe is warming as a whole, but that doesn't mean that everywhere is getting warmer, right? Some places are just getting wetter and some places are getting colder, actually. And, and, and it's going to change everywhere for an extended period of time. And so I have no idea. Our first vintage here was a drought year, which thank God for that. I mean, these vines don't need more water, right? We don't. And so a drought year in Vermont is like, is perfect for the vines. It's sad for a lot of the farmers, but we were very grateful. Last year was super wet. Actually, for us, it was a really challenging vintage because of that. So we were fighting a lot of the, the fungal issues and I'm, I'm grateful that it went pretty well. And, you know, the first year we got frost earlier than I was talking with Mark Boyden, who their family's been farming that land for generations. And he said, I haven't seen frost this early in 30 years in this valley. So that was fun. <laughs> and and who knows why, right? I mean, there's so many factors weighing into it. So I think if overall the climate here warms, which seems to be likely, then I think we're just going to see kind of potentially our season change. And maybe the ability to plant some varieties we've not worked with in the past suddenly become available. But I just, I, I am so afraid to make any guess on that because I think there's too many factors for any of us to really know. Yeah. Speaking of the season, with, with such late bud break and potentially early frost, how many, how many growing days do you guys actually typically see? I guess the grapes ripen pretty fast. It's actually almost identical to like Oregon. Hmm. But we just, because we bud late, but we actually harvest pretty late. All things considered, we're picking our red grapes, if we can, mid-October. Oh, wow. We're budding out mid-May. So really, we've got, what, June, July, August, September, October, basically a, a five-month growing period, which is pretty consistent, 150 growing days or so. Um, so how cold does it get, you know, come you know, in the nighttime, come, you know, early October up where you are? Is it still not dipping too, too far? It gets cold. I mean, like, like I said, we had a couple of, a few days, we had like three hard days of frost in late September in the first vintage that we had mm. last year's, uh, we had rain more than anything else, but it'll, it'll drop into the forties, but we're really not worried until it gets into the low thirties. And really it's the sort of mid to high twenties that we worry about frost and things like that. And we didn't see any of that last year during harvest until late October. So do you, do you find those, like, I don't know, I could say super cool, but cooler evenings consolidating more of that that acid? And does it, is it still getting warm enough in the day and enough sun to kind of finish off ripening those the phenolics or the, the skins as well? You know, I, <laughs> 
I think the varieties themselves drive the acidity more than the cool nights, but I don't have any, I don't know that there's any frame of reference for that because we, these varieties are really only planted in places where it, with the climate like this. And we don't have any, I haven't, I mean, it's pretty rare that we have a season where we don't have cool nights um, throughout most of the growing season with the exception of like August here. So, um, so I, I think the question is a really good one. I just don't know that I have enough information to answer it with any uh, actual data. <laughs> and it, you, you mentioned Oregon as a, you know, kind of a, a, a comparable. When you think about the old world, where do you look to, to to consider how these changes are affecting Vermont and, you know, what strategies you might use? Do you look to the old world? And, and if so, where? And uh, how do you see climate change affecting some of those regions that... Oof we all know, right? Like champagne and then thinking about maybe UK sparkling, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I think sparkling wine is really something that makes a lot of sense up here and will continue to do so. What'll be interesting is whether we are making sparkling wine. And I mean, I think Frontenac Blanc would make a really delicious traditional method wine. It's just none of us, I mean, none of us have the really the financial wherewithal to lay down a bunch of wine for three years to see how it goes. And there are, there are a few wineries that might be starting that process, but I think sparkling wine with hybrid varieties is definitely going to be a path forward. But I, I think if we end up planting vinifera, then looking at um, traditional methods uh, and, and growing Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and seeing what happens would make sense. I look a fair amount to like the Jura and Savoie, which are two areas that have struggled tremendously in the past two vintage, few vintages. And I'm going to be curious to see what they do moving forward. And Chablis is another area that's just wildly inconsistent right now. They've had horrible frost for, you know, in a number of recent vintages and, and they end up with some vintages that are super ripe. And so, and then people complain that it doesn't taste like Chablis. So Hmm. I think the one benefit to all of this for us is that nobody has any idea what Vermont wine tastes like. So there's no, there's no sense that one vintage is more or less classic than another. But I think we're looking really at all of the fringe areas um, to kind of get some pointers. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really has to be a really fun opportunity to know that the wines that you guys are making there now might be what's referred to as quote unquote classic in 15, 20 years. Who knows? Um, yeah. I mean, maybe, but that's, it's just a really, has to be a really cool way to approach it. I mean, we're all, Right now, the biggest challenge is getting vines in the ground. I think everybody, you know, people have reached out and I'm talking with some of my colleagues here. It's like, are you, are you doing any wholesale anywhere else in the country? And they're like, how can we do wholesale? We don't make enough wine. <laughs> you know, there isn't, there's about 150 acres planted in Vermont. That's like a small vineyard in Napa. <laughs> so I think right now the biggest goal is to get more vines in the ground and up production so that we can actually, if and when we can determine what classic vermont production looks like then we can get it out into the market a little bit more so in some of our previous chats you were talking about working with the the vermont legislature to pass some sort of bills that would be more favorable to winemaking in general in vermont have you seen any progress and what what does that entail i mean we only began some of that work really in the past nine months and so nothing in government moved super rapidly, but I think there is some forward momentum. We're working, I mean, it really has to do with like tasting room legislature because 
half of the people making wine in Vermont are making it in a barn somewhere. And so we're looking to kind of expand what is possible for tasting rooms, satellite tasting rooms that aren't where we're doing our production. That's a big part of it. But then also just expanding kind of the understanding uh, of how wine is produced and uh, what the requirements are to sort of promote the industry. Because, you know, Vermont is historically an agricultural state, but dairy and, you know, a lot of the crops that are traditional for Vermont are struggling right now because big, big farming in the Midwest can totally outbid them on everything except for like small craft cheese production and things like that. So I think the other push right now is to get grapes recognized as a more um, understandable crop and uh, and push for more farm subsidies to plant more grapes and promote uh, agriculture for alcohol production. So for beer production, for, you know, wine. And then there's a there are a bunch of folks pushing mead and, and spirits with local products. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining today. Those are all my questions. Brady, are you good as well? Yeah, David, that was really fascinating. I, you know, really excited to see how that region moves forward and just how you guys evolve in the future. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm excited that people are, hopefully people are interested and we'll, we'll see where things go in the future. Uh, I'm sure there will be. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to stay in touch and who knows, maybe down the line, we'll, uh, you'll be making enough wine to do it a futures offering of Vermont wines with Vince. So we can see. Yeah, Let's, <laughs> let's hope. Let's hope. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a good one. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you guys. Pleasure. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal tax or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.